Good evening. Good to have you here with us tonight. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. While you're turning there, I want to encourage you, if you uh, heard the uh, messages or the uh, announcements this weekend, uh, of our need for uh, teachers, especially in the two- and three-year-olds, toddler classes. uh, uh, If you've been praying about it, okay, good. But don't pray too long. I mean, we need the the help in there. And so... uh, Please see Henry and Cindy whenever you can. And if the Lord is really leading you to, to help out in that area, I really encourage you to let them know. Daniel chapter 5. We began last week in the first part, the first 16 verses was just kind of, <coughs> excuse me. We were just getting in the setting of, uh, of a time that came after the uh, reign of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, uh, of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of chapter 4, of course, uh, actually in chapter 4, has been taken through a, uh, an event in his own life, of a, an event whereby he is taken by God out of his reign and taken out into the fields like an animal for one main purpose, and that is so that he could recognize and that he would recognize that there was only one God and it wasn't him. He wasn't the Almighty God. He wasn't the Most High God. He was indeed a man and a king who, whom the true and living God placed in that position. And for seven years he found himself in this condition. And of course it was then that he finally looked up and reason returned to him as it tells us in verse 36 of chapter 4. And the Lord reestablished him in his kingdom, but now he knew who was the Most High God. He wasn't the Most High God, but he knew who the Most High God was. And so we ended chapter 4 on a high note, and we began chapter 5 on a low note. The grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, a man named Belshazzar, was now ruling in the city of Babylon and actually ruling the kingdom of Babylon, although his father was, in fact, the, the main king at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, but he uh, wasn't around. He was actually in Egypt for a time. And then, while Belshazzar is in this particular uh, uh, kingdom, his own father is out fighting the Medes and the Persians. But he's having a party. And in the first 16 verses, we see this event that is taking place where he begins to desecrate the things of God. 
because the things that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, he brought out now for him and his cohorts and all of the lords, a thousand of them, and wives and concubines and all, to start drinking wine out of these particular vessels. And three things in the life of Belshazzar are noted here to remind us to carefully walk in the presence of the Most High God. Pride, blasphemy, and idolatry. Those were the three sins of the first 16 verses here. And in the middle of all of this partying that was going on, a hand appeared on the wall behind the throne of Belshazzar, and on the plaster, the hand began to write a message. And immediately, Belshazzar just sinks. Actually, we were told that his knees were knocking together, but uh, the real picture was that they couldn't hold him. His body weight, and he fell to the ground in fear, in terror, actually. And he called immediately for the the wise men, or the not-so-wise men. The wise men of the kingdom, the magicians, and the Chaldeans, and, and the soothsayers, and all. And he said he wanted them to interpret the, the, the message that was on the wall. <coughs> and they could not. <coughs> and Belshazzar's grandmother, we, we believe, uh, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, she's called the queen, the queen mother actually, came to him and said, listen, there was a time where there was a man who helped your, fa- who, your grandfather. His name is Daniel. We nick- your, your, father, or your grandfather nick- nicknamed him or changed his name to Belteshazzar. So he's the one that you want to call because he can interpret this. One of the Hebrews, one of the children of Judah, who are here in captivity. By this time, Daniel is 80 years old or thereabouts. So they finally find him and bring him to Belshazzar. And Belshazzar says, listen, you tell me what that says. And I'll, I'll give you gold. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, give you, I'll, I'll clothe you in crimson and, and, and I'll make you a, a, the third leader in, 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 ba- in Babylon. Because there were already two, of course, his father and, him, and himself. And that's where we are. Now we get to see what this message is all about. And so in verse 17 it says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. Now, 
Folks, that's power, isn't it? That's enough power to make you think you're king. And even more than that, that's power to make you think you're God. But then he says, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew. Now notice this, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever He chooses. And so Nebuchadnezzar rode off into the sunset on a good note, didn't he? Nebuchadnezzar did. But many years later, his grandson was now ruling in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had finally come to know and understand the power and sovereignty of the Most High God of Israel in a most dramatic way. But his grandson Belshazzar was not so attentive to the accounts of this foreign God to him. He only mocked the God of Judah by desecrating the items of the Jewish temple or the Jerusalem temple. But but not only that, he flippantly and facetiously wrote off the advance of the Medo-Persian armies and their siege on the city of Babylon. I mentioned last time that uh, the Medo-Persian armies had, had formed a siege around the city of Babylon. But Belshazzar was, was proud enough and arrogant enough to say, you know what, they, they can't do anything to us. Our walls are, are, are high, are, are, they're thick, they, are, our towers, we can see everything that they're doing. We, we, can, we, we can take them down in a moment's notice, in the blink of an eye. Besides, we've stored up enough supplies in this whole city for 20 years. So we're not worried about those Medo-Persians. Let them sleep on their rugs. They're not getting in here. Let's party. The arrogance exhibited by Belshazzar began with his drinking. We talked about the the drinking of wine. We didn't talk a lot about it. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it tonight to kind of lead into the last part of this chapter. Turn to Proverbs, if you will. Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5. Because there was, a, there was a standard for kings of the time. There was a standard for kings. And the, and the standard was not just for, for the kings of Israel. And we know this from a lot of the writings of historians as well as the, uh, the writings of uh, the chronicles of, of other kings, you know, from these other nations, you know, that are found in, in the codes of Hammurabi and all of that. But, you know, we're not going into that detail. Let's look at what the Word of God says. Because in Proverbs 31, verse 4, it says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. In other words, it's not for kings to do what a lot of other people do. 
And there, of course, there's a lot of reasons, right? I mean, I mean, you're 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 a leader of a nation. You're you're actually the you're supposed to be the leader of, of not only the nation, but you're the leader of the armies of your nation. You remember David, right? David had a tremendous standard as as the leader of his whole nation because he was also the leader of the army. And then it says in verse five, lest they drink and forget the law, and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. We can say specifically that that's the law of God. That's the law of God toward the kings that were raised up in Israel. But there was a very similar kind of law in, in other nations. Because if they didn't have these kind of laws, I mean, these nations would be wiped out in a moment. Take, for example, Belshazzar. There's another verse of Scripture in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 17, that I'd like to draw your attention to. It says, Blessed art thou, O land, when thy king is the son of nobles, and thy princes eat in due season for strength and not for drunkenness. Of course, drink, uh, kings drank wine. They drank wine at their meals, but not for the sake of getting drunk. So now, in that, in that particular context, we see where Belshazzar is with his with his lords and with his wives and his concubines and, and, and all the people that were there. We saw that very, very soon in chapter 5. We saw it at the very beginning. They drank wine before the thousand. And Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, he was commanding them to bring out all of these vessels. Because they were going to continue to drink. This was not for him to do. So this attitude more than likely led to Belshazzar's toying with God. And listen carefully, he was toying with God instead of fearing God. How many people live their lives toying with God and not fearing God? Not fearing what God can do. Not fearing what God can do when people who should know better put aside the fear of the Lord for their own desires, for their own attitudes. Someone once wrote that Belshazzar treated the lion of the tribe of Judah like a tame pussycat. Just be careful when you stick your hand into the cage of a pussycat. Or what you think is a pussycat. Idolatry was another grave issue, wasn't it? Because we're told, of course, in the Scriptures there, that they also drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and of brass and of iron and of wood and of stone. That's verse 4. But I want you to consider something. I want you to turn, if you will, to the prophecy of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, actually, uh, a little closer to the way you should pronounce it. Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. And notice what it says here about idols. Because it says, What profiteth the graven image that the marker, or I'm sorry, that the maker thereof have, have, has graven it? In other words, what is the value, what is the real value of an idol? In other words, that's, that's really the question. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof has graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Now, I like that statement. Dumb idols. Why do people worship dumb idols? 
Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake! To the dumb stone, Arise! By the way, you understand that dumb means they, they can't really hear you. They, they're just... Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Now get this. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The Lord is in His temple. You see, we keep telling idols to speak, to do things. You know, the, we worship these things as if they could ever give us the greatest things that we need in this life. And God says, you know what? You just need to be silent and let me speak. I wonder if more people would do that. If, if more people would just let God speak to them and keep silent as a part of your worship, not all of your worship, but as a part of your worship, keep silent <laughs> to hear the Lord speak. And I'm not talking about, I'm certainly not talking about some con- contemplative prayer thing or whatever. There's just times when we already know. We look at God's Word, we read God's Word, we say we trust God's Word. It's about time that we listen to God's Word. We need to check our hearts sometimes that we're not reading the Bible just because we're trying to make sure that we read the whole thing at, you know, from Genesis to Revelation but not get anything out of it because we're, not, because we're not listening to it as God's Word. Is that possible to happen? Could it be very possible that sometimes we read words? Wasn't it a, wasn't it a part of, of some of our, our, our own religious culture that we, we said prayers but we had to say them and repeat them and repeat them and repeat them and they never made any sense? Because we really didn't say anything from the heart. We just said it with our lips. And is it any wonder that God says, look, look, they come to me with their lips, but man, their hearts are far from me? How interesting it is that the idols mentioned in Daniel chapter 5, verse 4, uh, gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, uh, stone, they are still gods for some people today. Some 2,500 years later, they're still gods. People still worship gold and silver. They still worship things made out of, out of uh, uh, brass and, and bronze and iron and, and wood and stone and fiberglass and rubber and motor oil and gasoline and do you know where we're going with all of that little plastic things we carry in our pockets and pull out every moment that we can to be transfixed. Some of you might remember when TVs first came into into being, right? The, the screens were actually about this big. And families would huddle around if they could afford one. 
They'd huddle around the little screen. Whoop, a little screen like this. I've got to fix my, my little pointer. Nowadays, we just take them with us. <laughs> I've actually seen, maybe you've seen this. You go to a restaurant and a family's there and all the, all the young kids have some kind of a device in front of them and nobody's talking. How do they eat? Put the plate on top of their head. Maybe osmosis, it just kind of sinks in. I don't know. Is these, can these things become idols to the, to the point that we, 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 we bow to them more than we bow to the God who created us in His image? But there was a sudden change. There was a, there was a sudden change from amusement and mirth to a hushed fear as, as this finger of a hand rode on a plastered wall and, and brought this arrogant king to, the, to fall to the ground in horrible fear, unable to physically stand due to his legs and knees shaking and, and collapsing under him. His insides, it even tells us, his insides were all messed up too. And he, and he calls for the not so wise men and the, and the queen mother then, more than likely, as I said, Nebuchadnezzar's wife reminds him of Daniel, and, uh, who when the prophet arrived spoke condescendingly to him. I mean, Belshazzar, Belshazzar speaks condescendingly to Daniel. I mean, this guy's in trouble, but he speaks down to the prophet. Art thou that Daniel, which art the, uh, of the children of the captivity or the exile of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewelry, which is, which is, uh, which is um, Judah? And that was a low... That, you know, I, I was mentioning that uh, the, the word is Judah, but, but I, I, I started thinking about, you know, the, the King James translators using that word because that would have been a word of condescension used in that way. So that's what sparked this understanding that what, what Belshazzar was saying was something that was speaking down. Possibly even in ridicule. But, Daniel, now being about 80 years old, he stands firm in his faith on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even after being offered riches and position, he says in effect, hey, keep your stuff. Just keep it. I can't be bought. We cannot be bought as believers in Jesus Christ. Although some people have been. Paid off to hold to a weaker message. <clears throat> we live in postmodern times. You know, you guys that are Bible believers, you guys need to put it aside. You need, you need to realize, you know, things have changed. You know, there's a, there's a new attitude in the land, even in the church. And I think I said this last week, but I'll repeat myself again. The Bible teaches me that God's never changed. God hasn't changed. Jesus hasn't changed. The Word of God hasn't changed. So, why are we changing? Changing in the um, 
in the name of tolerance and political correctness. Daniel didn't go for that kind of stuff. Look at what Daniel says. Daniel 5.17 And Daniel answered and said, Look, let your gifts be for yourself. Look, you keep them. Give the rewards to another. Yet I'll be, I'll, I will read the writing on the, unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. I want to read this because you know what? It's a message to you. It's a message to you from the God that you're ignoring, from the God that you're putting aside, from the God that you're uh, ridiculing. Daniel wasn't interested in the monetary gain and neither in the position offered. All he cared about was speaking forth the words of God to this king. And since Daniel realized that the king's time was quickly running out, he wanted to do nothing, he wanted nothing to do with him or his kingdom. And that's a good thing because this king was going down. He said, man, keep your titles, keep your stuff because hey, guess what? The writing is on the wall. So now, before Daniel tells Belshazzar what the writing on the wall meant, he witnesses to him. He witnesses to him about the sovereignty of God and that the one true God was in control and the one who rules the nations and not him. He wasn't in control. He says to him in verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. Whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And he was, then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast and his dwelling was, was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the, the dew of heaven till he knew, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. There's only one God and one King and one Almighty Being. And you're not Him. So what he does is he gives him this lesson from history. The history of his own grandfather. This is what will happen when you mess with the sovereignty of God. And to drive home his point, Daniel tells the king that it was his grandfather who learned those lessons that God was teaching him. It was his grandfather that was filled with pride and God brought him down to earth in a matter of, manner of speaking and made him eat grass like the wild animals until his pride was broken and he knew that the Most High God rules. And then he goes on. And listen to what he says because now what he says is this. This is the lesson that your grandfather had to learn now you, Belshazzar, you. And I wouldn't even doubt that Daniel stuck his, his own finger in the guy's face. You. Notice, verse 22, And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, has not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. Daniel realized he's not telling Belshazzar something new. He is telling him something that he should have already known. He would have known. Whether anybody else in the kingdom knew, he knew.
You, O Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but has lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords and thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold and of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not nor hear nor know, and the God is whose hand and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. This is one of the longest verses in the, in the Scriptures. It, it's a long verse. But I mean, this is, this is the way that Daniel was just going right into his face to tell him. That he had not humbled himself. He had revealed his pride. He had revealed his blasphemy. And he had revealed... His idolatry. And then he says, Then was the part of the hand sent from him. In other words, this hand that you saw writing on that plaster wall, God sent it for you. God sent it for you. And this writing was written. The indictment against Belshazzar was that he did not learn the lessons from his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar and he refused to be broken of his prideful heart and because of this the Lord God was going to bring him down. Daniel was harsh with his king. Now a lot of times we think God's harsh with us. As believers... He loves us with an everlasting love. But many times He has to awaken us. When we're drawing ourselves away from Him and we are becoming prideful and we are becoming more dependent on ourselves or other people than upon Him, and He has to shake us. And we say, oh God, you're being harsh. No, if you want Him to be harsh, He will be. But He's not harsh. He is loving And sometimes He lovingly shakes us. (laughs) I don't want to shake too much because I don't want to break my neck up here. But sometimes He shakes us. And it seems harsh. But it awakens us. Daniel was harsh with this king because he should have known better. Why does the Lord shake us? Because we should know better. Belshazzar should have paid attention to the lessons his grandfather had learned. And I would not doubt that at some time in his life, Nebuchadnezzar had testified to his own family as well as to all the people, which he did. That's what, was, that's what chapter 4 was all about. He knew that there was an all-powerful God, but in his blasphemous pride and idolatry, he held back the truth. He held back the truth. It was like a a spring that you 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 know you you kind of set for action and and you you hold it down. You don't want it to come up. And that's called suppressing. You suppress this spring, as it were. So in effect, this is what Paul in Romans calls the suppression of truth. The holding back of truth. 
As a matter of fact, in Romans 1, verses 18 to 23, and if we had time, we'd go through the whole chapter, Romans chapter 1, but I'll just give you a section of it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against. Now, please ask yourself some questions as you go through this passage. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Are, are any of us there right now? See, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, that's not for us. But we still have to examine our hearts, don't we? So for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold, and that word means to suppress, to hold down or hold back the truth in unrighteousness. So, do we pass this verse now? We're, we're, we're beyond this because this isn't about us. I, I hope we can. Can we do it? All right, let's go on. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. <clears throat> God has, in other words, God has given everyone a certain, a certain understanding or a certain knowledge of truth. Because God, it says, for God has showed it unto them. The heavens declare the glory of God, don't they? But how many people want to believe that today? No, they'd rather believe in that theory of two little, you know, freckles flying in the sky five million, billion, trillion years ago and, and somehow colliding and all of a sudden this is what we get. That which may be known of God is manifest in them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Order. Even science, true science, all things are clearly seen. The invisible things are seen. Isn't that a wonderful statement? The invisible things are seen. Being understood by the things that are made, again, all uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. Even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse. You go out on the street and you, and you, and you commit a traffic violation and the, the officer comes up to your window and he says, you did this and you did this and you said, officer, I, I didn't know. And he says, sorry. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. People are without excuse. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Remember we talked a lot this past weekend about light and dark in John chapter 1? Their hearts were darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I hate to say it, but I think we have to. We live in a very foolish world today. If we narrow it down, we live in a very foolish nation. And the nation today is very foolish because the nation as a whole, is, as, in, in, in a sense, as a whole, has forsaken God. The nation as a whole. And now people are just little by little waking up. How strange it is that our administration, our own administration, will not acknowledge that, the, that 21 Coptic Christians were killed, not just 21 citizens of Egypt. Why can't we say that?
Because we become foolish. Because we profess ourselves to be wise. Are we right? Are we wise as a people? As a nation? Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people, my people, are we His people? If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Are we beyond the ones who are wise becoming fools? I hope. I hope we're praying for our nation. This is what has happened. They've changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And we worship the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. It goes on to say later. We worship the creature more than the Creator. Man knows there is a God. For the heavens declare it. But man is accountable for what they know and what they suppress. Folks, we are accountable for what we know, what we believe, and what we suppress. As far as the truth is concerned. And Belshazzar should have known better. He lived in willful defiance of God, challenging the Lord with His desecration and His praise of man-made gods. They have no life. But by contrast, the true God not only has life, but held the king's life in his hand. That's what it says in the text. Daniel says, The God who holds your breath, your life, is sending you a message. The hand from which a finger would write this message. Do you remember, by the way, the boast, the reason for the party? We talked about the fact that they, they felt safe and secure inside the walls of of Babylon because of the, the structures that they had built. The water of the Euphrates that came into the city. Hey, you're not going to stop the Euphrates from coming in here. We're going to have water and we're going to have food for 20 years. Do you remember the boast? Do you also remember what we studied in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3 for when they shall say what? Peace and safety. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. That is exactly then what happens here to Belshazzar and the people of Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon. So now comes the verdict, the writing on the wall. Verse 25 of our text. And this is the writing that was written. Mene, mene, tekel ufarsin. Mene, mene, tekelu farsin. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, you know, you look at you look up pictures like on the internet for, for the writing on the wall, Daniel five and stuff, and they'll have pictures that you know kind of, you know, some of them are cartoonish like, in other words, they're kind of, you know, quick drawings and stuff. And the ones I like, the ones I like the most is when when they're writing in English. And I kept thinking, maybe that's what, they, what the hand wrote. It wrote in English because nobody understood English in those days. There wasn't English. So, I mean, they wrote it in, 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 in the kind of English letters. That's what I mean. Many, many. 
They, they wrote it in English. They were like, what is that? You know, they, they didn't write that way. Some people think that uh, hand wrote in Hebrew. But it was still to get an understanding. They didn't understand the message. They didn't understand the message. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene. It actually, it actually is the, the root word for the word mina. Now, mina is a, 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 a kind of currency. So notice it says, Mene, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and are found wanting. Instead of Ufarsin, where the, the message is written, he gives them the, the singular, the Ufarsin is the, the plural, this is the singular parish, or Paris. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Okay. So let's talk about that. As God had judged Nebuchadnezzar's pride by removing him from the throne, so he would judge Belshazzar's pride by taking the kingdom from him and giving it to another people. First, Daniel read the inscription which the wise men were unable to read, or at least to read and understand. It was a brief message containing only three words. The first word, of course, repeated, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin. Tekel sounds like what? Shekel. And that's exactly what it means, shekel. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's, let's look at a, a, a very literal translation of what was said, or what was written. Amina, Amina, a shekel, and half a shekel. A divided shekel. Amina, Amina, a shekel, and half a shekel. Now, can you understand what that means? No, Daniel had to <laughs> interpret that. The, the, the mene as, a, as, a, uh, as, as an Aramaic noun referring to a weight of 50 shekels. 50 shekels was equal to something like a, a, a pound and a quarter. One and a quarter pounds. So that had to be weighed out in whatever currency that we, they were using. Or whatever material, for example, gold or silver or whatever. Uh, one and a quarter pounds was, was a, was uh, 50 shekels. Uh, and amina was 50 shekels. It is from the word mena, which means to number or to reckon. Today, what we would say in the statement is, your number's up. That's what that means. Your number is up. So the meaning is clear. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and has brought it to an end. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and he has brought it to an end. And then there's tekel. It is a noun referring to a shekel. Tekel, shekel. Sounds pretty close, doesn't it? That's, that's the way it works. And, you know, you study linguistics and, and, and languages, you realize there's a lot of connections to that. Uh, it, it refers to a shekel, a shekel being, of course, if you do the math, two-fifths of an ounce. It is from the verb to weigh. It comes from the, the verb to weigh. The message from this word is, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, which means you were found a little too light. You know, when you, when you weigh the balances out, you know, there, was a, there was a counterbalance to weigh so that the, it would, it would uh, 
give you a, a, an equal balance, but nope, you were found wanting. You were too light. So this meant that Belshazzar had been evaluated by God, weighed in the balance and found to be too light. And again, to understand this, a balance was the normal device used in weighing payments. A payment was to meet a certain standard. So if it did not meet that standard, it was rejected and unacceptable. Remember that the Scriptures also tell us that a false balance is an abomination unto the Lord. Belshazzar's moral and spiritual character did not measure up to the standard of God's righteousness. So he was rejected. By the way, in 1 Samuel 2, verse 3, it says, Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Uh, by the way, this is, this is a prayer, uh, rather a prophetic prayer, by Hannah uh, in, in the, uh, as, you know, as she was praying unto the Lord. Interesting, uh, she says, really kind of saying this to everybody, Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Actions are weighed. What do we do? What do we not do? And, and, and do we realize that eventually there's, there's a balance and our actions are weighed? Then there's Paris. And yet, if your last name is Perez, yet you're related to this, this word. And, and, and you know, you go back all the way to, and we talked about this way back in the book of Genesis, long time ago, about, the, you know, the, uh, the sons that were, that were, you know, twins, and there was a division there. Okay, anyway, uh, in interpreting the third word, Daniel changed the plural parson to the singular Perez because Belshazzar's kingdom was to be broken up and divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So there's the division. And the noun parson means half a mina, half a mina, or 25 shekels, or about two-thirds of a pound. And the message is, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. And by the way, the word for Persians is related to the word Upharsin or Parson or Paris. So it's a play on words in essence. And so the message was that because of the moral and spiritual degradation of the king and his kingdom, God would terminate the Babylonian Empire and give it to another. In this case, to Darius or Darius and the Medo-Persian Empire. We'll meet him later. The scriptures teach us to number our days, don't they? The scriptures teach us to number our days, and yet we are not to tempt the Lord God. We are to number our days, but we're not to tempt the Lord God. And so in Romans, I'm sorry, in Romans, in Psalm 90, verse 12, it says, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Again, the standard of God has not changed. The standard of God has not changed. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? It's not going to matter. 
If we reject Jesus Christ, we will come before God being weighed in our own righteousness and we will be found short or unbalanced to God's standards. If we weigh our righteousness with the righteousness of God, we will be found wanting light. Because of that, we will be divided or separated from God for eternity. God's scales are fair, for He has given us the weight to meet those standards and to balance those scales. And what is that weight? It is Jesus Christ Himself. We are to be found in Christ. We are to be clothed with Christ. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Because unless we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness, the scales will be unbalanced and we will fall short. I don't care how much a person does on his own to try to help people. I mean, that's a good thing. God, God will have to just deal with all of that. That's His, that's his burden, not ours. The fact of the matter is that we are not saved by works of righteousness. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, we are saved. It is from being saved by the mercies of God that changes our hearts so much that all we want to do is serve the Lord and serve others. And to do so with, with a humble and a selfless heart. A lot of times people give so that they can be seen in giving. Jesus dealt with that too. The scribes and the Pharisees, look at what they do. They go out into the streets to, you know, they, they, they pray loud enough so everybody says, my, what, a, what holy men these, these are. The Lord says, listen, when you do what you got to do, do it so that nobody, you know, your heavenly Father is going to acknowledge you. Do it as unto the Lord and not unto men. So remember this, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For He has made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's the weight and balance. It is the weight of Jesus. He comes into our life. Here we are. Found wanting, and we can't even we can't even move the scale until Jesus comes and and balances the scale for us. And so a hard lesson is revealed. A hard lesson is revealed, especially for Belshazzar, because notice in verse twenty nine it says, "In command, then commanded Belshazzar and the." clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. I, I mean, I could just see little 80-year-old Daniel standing there with a, some kind of a scarlet robe on him and a gold chain, you know, whatever. And third ruler in the kingdom. But notice the next verse. In that night, very same day, very same evening, was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. 
And Darius the Median, or Median, I should say, took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. He was 62 years old, Darius. We'll talk about him next time. And we'll show you the accuracy of, of, the, day, of, of the age that he was. It sure seems like the party continued with an award ceremony and proclamation, didn't it? Okay, so you told us what it is. Here's your robe. Here's your gold chain. You're the third ruler in the kingdom. And everybody's, oh, yay. Well, what was happening was that the smoke alarm had gone off. You could smell the smoke. But the festivities continued. In a sense, this was unexpected. One might have expected the king's wrath falling on Daniel instead of because of the message that he brought. I mean, some kings would have said, hey, you're talking bad about me. Boom, off with your head. Instead, Daniel was promoted and reward, uh, rewarded according to Belshazzar's word. But that was really short-lived. That's the reason why, why he, uh, Daniel tells him, he says, hey, keep your stuff. I'm not going to need it after a, an hour or two. It's not going to do me any good. Besides, I don't want to be called a king when these guys are coming into this place. And we know from the historian Xenophon and Herodotus and, and, and Berossus that the city of Babylon had been under assault by Cyrus. And as I pre- previously noted, Belshazzar had stored supplies in the city for at least 20 years in anticipation of this long siege. The, the, uh, the Euphrates ran through the city, so the residents had plenty of water. But Belshazzar had a false sense of security. How many people today have a false sense of security because they have a very, a very superficial uh, understanding of God or they go to church maybe once a, a month or, you know, once a year or twice a year? You know, the CEO Christians, right? Christmas and Easter only, that's CEO They only do that then. And they have a false sense of security. And Belshazzar had a false sense of security. The the, the Persian army, uh, uh, historians say they they were led by Ugbaru, and some believe that that's Darius or Darius, was just outside the city walls. Cyrus, we know, was. And their army, their army was divided. The army of the Medes and the Persians was divided, but not in the way you think. Because one part stationed itself where the river entered the city at the north. And the other part was positioned where the river exited the city at the south. And the army diverted the waters north of the city by digging a canal from the river to the nearby lake. And, without, and with the water now diverted, its level receded and the soldiers were able to enter the city by going under the drain gate. And since the walls were unguarded, the Persians, once inside the city, were able to conquer it without a fight. No fighting took place, according to the historians. No fighting. Not only was Daniel's prophecy fulfilled in verse 28, but also a prophecy of Isaiah given 150 years before it took place. Look at this prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 47, verses 1 through 5. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. 
Take the millstones and grind meal, uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh. In other words, everything's going to be naked and open. Pass over the rivers. Interesting statement, pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not meet thee as a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit thou silent and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I find that last phrase very interesting, the Lady of Kingdoms, because not long ago when we were studying the book of Revelation, especially in chapters 18 and 19, we were talking about Babylon, uh, mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. And uh, this prophecy, if we understand prophecy, not only gets fulfilled in a, in a uh, near fulfillment, but also points to a further fulfillment which is yet to come. And there is a Babylon. And as we mentioned it, uh, uh, it may very well be in the area of what we see all of the tension and, and things going on, not just in, in, in Iraq, but actually even further south in, in Saudi Arabia and uh, Dubai, uh, uh, the Arab Emirates, uh, United Arab Emirates and all that. But you got to listen to all of that stuff because it was pretty detailed. Just an interesting thing, the Lady of, of Kingdoms. And so the rule of the Medes and the Persians was the second phase of the time of the Gentiles. The second phase. What was the first phase? The first phase was, of course, the first part of that statue that was in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the gold head. The gold head now is taken off. In, this, in essence, I hate to say, use the word decapitated, but that's what it was. In essence, it was decapitated. And now came the, the chest of silver, the chest and, and arms of silver, the new kingdom. The events of this chapter do, in fact, illustrate that God is sovereign and moves according to His predetermined plans. Prophetically, these events anticipate the final overthrow of all Gentile world powers that rebel against God and are characterized by moral and spiritual corruption. We can definitely see it in Revelation chapter 19 uh, when it says that Jesus, who is the one who is the rider of the white horse, the, the true rider of the white horse, not the one of chapter 6, but the true rider uh, is, is, is the one who's going to come and judge the nations. And, uh, of course, there's many other, other places, Revelation 16 and, and, and others. But let's close with Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6, because we can see it here as well in a greater sense. Psalm 2, verse 1, it says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And again, you think of, of that, that character of, of Belshazzar who didn't care to deal with the God of, of, of Daniel, the God of Isaac and uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? A vain thing would be, you know, a useless thing of thinking you're God and, and God isn't. He says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And this is the attitude of people today. They just want to break free from this attitude. Of, they, they even make it sound like, you know, God is, is keeping them from what they want to do. They're free to do what they want to do. Unfortunately, what's going to happen is they'll be judged for it. Verse 4 says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. 
Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. And yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. God has a king. God is a king. But he has a king. When you read further on into Psalm 2, you realize that that king is his son. And his son is our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, who came the first time not to, not to judge or condemn, but he came to save. But he comes again. And when he comes again, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so it would pay us great dividends if we will look to the Lord who loves us and loves us with an everlasting love and commit our every day and our every moment to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for bringing us together once again this week and and certainly, Lord, to appreciate Your Word. We realize, Lord, the, the extent of... of of, of the the weight of, of burden that that you have for your creation. How you do not rejoice, Lord God, in, in the death of the wicked. But nonetheless, because you are a true and righteous God, because you are a just God, you have to judge. So we know, Lord God, that your patience and your loving kindness has been extended for for years upon end. And so now, Lord, we look to these last days as a time for us to, to be serious about our faith, about our fellowship with you, about our relationship with you. To be serious, Lord, about how we serve you. And to keep looking to you, Lord, to fulfill your every word, your every promise, your every prophecy. And until that day, Lord, we ask that you would grant us the wisdom of your Holy Spirit and the strength and the courage to be your servants, to be your witnesses, to be light and darkness, to be salt to this earth. Lord, we, we, we trust that you love us more than we could ever understand. But it isn't just enough to know that you love us. It's enough, Lord God, to express our love to you. Bring us, Lord, to that place where where we can with, with courage and with confidence look up and lift up our heads because our redemption draws near. Help us in understanding these things as we continue on in your word this week and every day until the day of Jesus Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.